Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is Disruptors at Work, an integrated care podcast, where all of the topics will be with subject matter experts, practitioners and providers, leaders and managers who are implementing integrated health projects all over the world. I'm your host, Dr. Kara English. Welcome back to the Disruptors at Work podcast. This is an integrated care podcast produced by Cummings Graduate Institute. And I am the host, Dr. Kara English. I'm the CEO of Cummings Graduate Institute. Today, we will be talking about transgendered health equity. Transgender patients currently encounter multiple barriers to accessing adequate health care. And while we are making some strides to improve transgender patients' health care experiences, we still have a long way to go to achieve the goal of delivering ample support in navigating existing obstacles. A recently published article from the JAMA Network confirms the challenges that trans youth have in accessing culturally competent health care, and we know the same is true for trans adults. The article also confirms what we already knew, that transgender and non-binary youth have a higher incidence of a range of health conditions and may paradoxically face limited access to health care. As the push for integrated care continues, healthcare providers need to be identifying strategies to fill gaps in care for vulnerable patient populations. And at the same time, there's a lot that employers can do when making benefit selections. In today's discussion, we'll talk about the role of professional case managers, employers, and other integrated healthcare providers in connecting transgender patients to services that better meet their physical and behavioral health needs. When these kinds of gaps are addressed, we can improve healthcare utilization while also decreasing disparities. And I want to welcome our two guests today. Michael Garrett is a principal at Mercer, where he leads consulting engagements with large plan sponsors regarding their health plan benefits and works with clients in developing and implementing new care delivery models, such as accountable care organizations or ACOs. His education includes a master's degree from the University of Idaho in clinical psychology and a bachelor's degree in psychology from Gonzaga University. He is a certified case manager, certified vocational evaluator, board certified patient advocate, and a nationally certified psychologist. Michael has authored and or edited six case and care management books, and is the author of numerous journal articles in the field. He is frequently invited to speak at national conferences related to his many areas of expertise. Jennifer Kelly is our other guest today, and she is a LPC and a student in the DBH program at CGI. Jennifer is currently working in an integrated care setting in Pennsylvania and is the author of a recently published article called Transgender Discrimination and Its Influence on Patient Health, which appears in the November-December 2021 issue of Professional Case Management. We will provide a link to this article and to articles that Michael has also authored and also to more resources in the notes for the podcast. So Jennifer and Michael, welcome to you both. I'm really Grateful to you both for taking time out of your very busy schedules to talk with me today. Glad to be with Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. So Jennifer, let's dive in. I'm really excited to talk with you more about the study that you recently completed at CGI. Um, you did some research into health equity and access to care for transgender individuals. And then your research on that actually became a paper that you then published. 
So could you tell us first about some of the barriers to care that you discovered in your research for transgendered individuals? Sure. Yep. So pretty much the biggest, I guess, light bulb moment for me when I started looking at some of the barriers are sort of how preventable they can be, um, which of course then made me think of like, yes, these are barriers and there's also then opportunities to work through them. Um, but that in the meantime, while we correct these challenges to healthcare for our transgender patients, sort of we need to help navigate the existing model now um, because it can create, like you said, these barriers. So um, I read about lots of discrimination in healthcare settings, um, whether that's intentional or not. Um, uh, barriers with health insurance, um, if patients don't have it, or even just navigating it for the ones that do so that they can make sure that they're getting the care that they need. Mm -hmm. um, provider education, so making sure that they're able to access care in their mm -hmm. area, not having to drive super far to receive it, um, to be with providers that they feel like understand and can meet their needs. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and then just overall, like, healthcare settings and how they can often be very binary and limiting for our transgender patients as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And, and I, you know, that's a lot to unpack and I know that you are trying your best to, to summarize a wealth of research into a few sentences. I want to unpack uh, the idea of discrimination a little bit further. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the experiences that transgender individuals have and some of the discrimination that they face? Mm -hmm. Yep. So in healthcare settings specifically, um, unfortunately, lots of them are not designed necessarily how I feel anyway, they could or should be. So right now, although we're making strides, there's definitely a binary lens to that. So you go into your, even just checking in at your appointment um, for forms, are there options for patients to check any gender that they feel? Are there gender neutral language, gender neutral spaces, bathrooms? Um, are the physical environments affirming? Um, if patients don't feel that when they're entering, it's gonna be really hard to build that trust and have them come back to get their health needs met. Um, so there's some like environmental discrimination. Um, I would say even at, sometimes at check-in, like maybe even unintentional discrimination from the language that we're using with patients or how we're approaching maybe disparities or differences that we might see in the patient in front of us versus their chart. Um, and then as well, getting with the providers, are they affirming and um, are we facing any discrimination in, in the appointments themselves as well? Mm -hmm. So Jen, I was just going to add on, I, I think you point, you make a really good point um, that it, when a patient comes in, you know, brick and mortar uh, situation, um, uh, providers or um, support staff uh, making assumptions about someone's gender as they present, as opposed to asking, revealing your own pronoun, asking their uh, gender or their, uh, their identified pronoun, identified gender, I think also <clears throat> comes to my mind as a way to be more inclusive with the uh, uh, transgender patients. Mm -hmm. So I um, just want to add on to that. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both. And <clears throat> one of the things that, you know, in a birth center, which is my um, area of practice as a clinician um, and, a, and a doctor of behavioral health, um, it, it, it does seem, as you mentioned, Jen, to be very easily preventable to do things like open up the option of selecting more than one gender to provide an option in the electronic health record for gender fluidity, um, you know, to provide an option to select pronouns from the get-go. 
uh, rather than to make any assumptions about the presentation, like you mentioned, Michael. And, and certainly that, that is something that we had put into practice, um, you know, years ago, maybe, maybe about five years ago. And it, we might've been a little ahead of the game at that point. I'm not sure, but certainly just ways that clinicians and practice owners can really look at using the, the low hanging fruit of making the healthcare environment far less binary in, in the lens that we use. So I really appreciate those, those strategies. Um, from a clinical perspective, I have talked with and consulted with some providers who feel afraid to ask patients about gender identity and um, pronouns for fear primarily that comes from, you know, just not having a large volume of transgender individuals or non-gender binary individuals that they've come into contact with in the clinical practice. And then when, when a person comes in who does identify as non-gender binary, um, they often will feel afraid of using, you know, just like they get more anxious around the individual because they are afraid of being offensive. And then that sometimes can, you know, also feel discriminatory to the individual who's coming in for care because they really just want a provider who's going to give them the best care possible and not necessarily have to teach them, um, you know, about who they are or about trans individuals in general. And that, and that's something, Michael, that I know you've talked with um, before that, you know, many people who are trans often are counted upon to teach the, the providers you know, and I know a large number of transgendered people, I think it was around 68% of transgender people, especially those of color, report having experienced mistreatment at the hands of a medical provider, including refusal of care and verbal or physical abuse, you know, prior to a recent survey. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that fear um, and potentially, you know, the idea that because I am afraid or because I don't have a lot of experience, perhaps you are outside of my scope of care. What do the two of you think about that? So having spoken to case managers, both nationally and regional conferences, uh, they typically come because of that very reason, Dr. English, like they don't know this topic at all and um, they want to learn. And they said, you know, gosh, I, I got this um, uh, transgender client or patient and I didn't know what to say and I didn't know what to do. And I think what that speaks to me about is that that we all need to be on our diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI journey and learning about um, the diverse uh, patient or client population that we're working with and educating ourselves around that. Most licensed professionals and certified professionals in their code of conduct <clears throat> have anti-discrimination. And I think going beyond that, the other piece for certified case managers, for example, is the concept of advocacy. And if there's any patients that need advocacy, it is transgender patients and particularly transgender women of color who have the trifecta of transphobia, misogyny, and racism that they're dealing with and have huge barriers in terms of uh, every healthcare system, criminal justice system, education system. So we really owe it to ourselves and to the patients and clients that we work with to educate ourselves on these concepts, to understand what does transgender mean, um, how to use the correct pronoun, how to effectively communicate um, and, and uh, with transgender patients and really any patient that we're working with. So that's my two cents worth. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Jen, um, I want to give you a chance to weigh in as well. 
Yeah, I, I agree with what Michael said. And I would just add as, you know, we as counselors, providers, like we have some of the hardest conversations with our patients on a day-to-day basis. So we learn, we grow, we figure it out. You know, we do our own research so that patients aren't the ones teaching us. And I think with transgender health, it should be the same. Like we need to do our own education so that we're competent in meeting their needs. Um, but also just making it sort of routine to talk about, like, like you said at our intro, what are my pronouns and sharing that and making that part of a routine discussion. So it doesn't become something that we're then only doing with the patients. We feel like maybe it's appropriate, um, so that it doesn't feel as uncomfortable, um, because we should be able to talk about gender and pronouns with our patients. Um, and the only thing I would add to, to that is making sure, you know, as you said, Dr. English, sometimes we feel it's out of our scope, but what is that patient actually asking of us? Like, is what they're looking for truly out of our scope or is that maybe our own anxieties coming up? So I would say just sort of having those conversations and self-reflecting maybe before and after the appointments as well. Mm -hmm. I love that idea, especially if, um, you know, really trying to uh, boil any of your own anxiety down, um, especially when you are, you know, working with a person who really deserves the best of us being able to identify what it is that we don't know. And instead of, you know, acting from an anxious avoidance, you know, point of view, um, perhaps owning what we don't know, but also making that commitment in that reflection that we do after the appointment and, and hopefully before the appointment as well to look into the education and resources that we can locate so that we can learn more Um, so just like if I had a patient who had a medical condition that I'd never, um, you know, learned about before, didn't know much about, or someone who was taking a medication, I didn't really know a whole lot about it would be, you know, I would put the responsibility on myself to learn more about that so that I could be the help, um, and the provider and, and knowledgeable, you know, um, at least minimally knowledgeable the next time I, um, visit with a patient. Um, so I appreciate that from both of you. I think there, there's. Um, definitely um, the individual, you know, clinician level, as well as the systems level um, of improvements that we can be making. Sometimes people think, well, I'm just one person, what can I really do? But one person can inspire colleagues, and also, you know, other patients to, you know, become more, like you mentioned, um, Michael, to go further along that DEI, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion path of self-growth and development. Yeah, I just, I, I've seen a, um, a meme on social media that says, uh, like it's a resident um, going through training and says uh, to the to the lead uh, physician, I uh, wonder if I'm not comfortable, what should I do if I'm not comfortable working with LGBTQ patients? And the response is, find a new profession. So uh, I, I think that's really true. Now, I, I will caveat this by saying I was in a, a, presenta- a panel presentation once and this uh, medical director got up to sp- speak and he said, you know, I'm an openly gay man, but if I had a patient coming to me that was going through a gender transition, I would not be the right provider. So I think it's also um, helpful to know what your boundaries might be. Um, and in that situation, I thought that was really uh, great on his part, mm-hmm. but, but he said, you know, if a transgender patient's coming to me, just, you know, uh, he was an internal medicine doc, um, you know, for just wellness checkup or whatever, that's fine. But if it's through going through a transition process, then that may be an indication where you need to identify and refer to a specialist that can help that individual. 
Well, and I, I can really get behind that because all of us have what we know well enough to be able to, you know, be in the process of learning or be on that journey of, you know, increasing our own, broadening our own horizons, but also capable and ethically, you know, responsible in the relationship for guiding treatment and owning, you know, the accountability that goes along with that. And at the same time, we do have our limits and, you know, so, so, you know, myself, I, I try to be as inclusive and, and to learn as much as I can read and listen, you know, to other podcasts as much as I can, but if for an individual who maybe were, you know, was considering surgery or, you know, considering, um, you know, moving into a direction that I didn't know a whole lot about, I would be very open and honest with the person and talk about, you know, do you feel um, at some point that we should be consulting with other resources or that a referral to individuals who truly that for them, this is their specialty would be in order so that you get the best care possible, because that is always my aim. Um, and I think that that is an important thing to be, you know, like you mentioned, um, Jen, we have to have very difficult, complex, complicated conversations with our patients. And certainly, you know, who do you think um, will be possible, uh, excuse me, who do you think will be able to give you the best care possible? And how can I work with you to arrange other resources so that it's not just you're settling for me because that's all you know? Um, you know, I think that's another thing that we, we really just have to lead um, because the patient may feel like they're going to offend us by saying, are you sure you can do this? So I think, you know, the, the responsibility kind of falls back on us. Yeah, totally, totally agree with those comments. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, one of the things, Jen, um, that, you know, you talk about in your article is the avoidance of medical care. Um, and, and Michael, this is something that you've, you know, talked about previously and, and can speak to a little bit further today. But, you know, for especially particularly for transgendered individuals, the avoidance of medical care due to feeling like my provider doesn't understand me. Um, you know, just, just think about how much that decreases the quality of life. Um, we've seen in the pandemic, you know, just some of the results of individuals avoiding medical care due to worries about COVID or not having, you know, having uncertainty about how COVID is going to be handled or what's appropriate and what's not in the medical arena. Um, you know, and, and we're now seeing that individuals who perhaps would have been caught at a, at a lower stage of um, cancer are now coming in at a higher stage. Um, you know, it could have been it could have been caught earlier, um, and so that's something that you know we really want to work actively against. Um, so, Michael, maybe you could talk a little bit about what are some of the outreach strategies that healthcare providers or employers who offer healthcare benefits could make to transgendered individuals to encourage them to go and get the care that they need? Yeah, so I think from an employer perspective, first of all, making sure that they have comprehensive coverage for gender affirmation treatment. So that's surgical procedures, hormones, complementary and reconstructive procedures, support for fertility preservation, like for example, before someone starts hormone uh, treatment, um, doing sperm freezing or egg freezing. Um, and then, you know, aspirationally would be identifying centers of excellence. Um, in um, transgender health, we all kind of know 
where the um, centers of excellence are. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, there are some emerging um, solutions out there that offer centers of excellence for gender affirmation treatment. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what I find from an employer perspective is that um, they typically cover the surgical procedures, uh, so-called top and bottom surgeries, hormone mm -hmm. therapy, but um, we run into a lot of barriers covering um, what are called reconstructive and complementary procedures, such as electrolysis, tracheal shaving, facial feminization, and so forth, um, because some of those are considered to be cosmetic in nature. And I talk to uh, employers and insurance executives all the time and just say, we start with a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, and that's why these procedures are not considered cosmetic. These kinds of things may be these kinds of treatments may be even more important than top or bottom surgery, mm -hmm. um, but people tend to get really focused on, on surgical procedures. And in a 2015 survey um, that was conducted, 0.6% uh, of the population identified as trans and only 25% of the 0.6% said that they had any kind of surgical procedures, but mm -hmm. half were receiving hormone therapy and half were receiving behavioral health services. So I, I think, um, that's what I would say from an employer perspective, from a pro provider perspective, just understanding that the trans community have higher incidence, for example, of behavioral health issues, suicide, mm -hmm. suicidality, depression, anxiety, higher uses of tobacco and alcohol. Uh, and another potentially really uncomfortable um, aspect for the trans community is there's a higher percentage of trans individuals who have engaged in sex work, either in the past or present. Yeah. And mm -hmm. having judgment around that, I think we got to just check that at the door. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some individuals have chosen to go uh, get black market hormone therapy. And so really creating a space for the trans patient to be able to reveal um, what hormones they're using, what kind of uh, sexual activities they've engaged in, mm -hmm. either in the past or current. So we have to have those kinds of conversations, but as any healthcare professional, you have to be able to talk about those kinds of things. That's what we, yeah. that's what our jobs are. And if you're not comfortable with that, then like I said, you might want to think about another profession, frankly. So yeah. anyway, those are my yeah. thoughts. Thank you. Jen, do you want to weigh in there? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with what Michael said. And just sometimes, again, going back to we have to have these conversations, we sign up for those. Um, but just remembering, too, that this discrimination in healthcare settings really is pervasive um, and it can have detrimental effects, not only on patients that are sick in that moment, but down the road as well. Like you said, Dr. English, things that could be prevented or caught, um, it shouldn't that they feel like they can't go to their healthcare provider for medical care that they might need now or in the future, whether that's related to their gender identity or not. So I think, again, we just have to do better in that regard and um, fix these things for our patients. Mm -hmm. You know, and <clears throat> it also occurs to me and, and several reports have looked at that have looked at this. Um, Michael, you had shared with me earlier that there was a 2018 brief from the Kaiser Family Foundation that found that more than half of medical school curriculums lack information about the unique issues that the LGBTQ community faces and don't cover treatment beyond HIV prevention and care. Mm -hmm. And so this absolutely contributes to transgender people's inability to access affirming care. Absolutely. There, there, there is a change happening there that um, LGBTQ specific needs are being identified. There's some um, uh, textbooks that are now coming out mm -hmm. uh, and so forth uh, that help educate not only the medical professions, but other, you know, behavioral health and, and, and others. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think the range of things are, I mean, some practical things are, 
avoiding misgendering, the concept, the idea of um, using the wrong pronoun. I was on a very painful clinical assessment recently where we were re uh, reviewing cases and like listening to recorded phone calls and the nurse case manager kept using the wrong gender and I kept correcting her. And it just, I, I, she clearly was uncomfortable using the appropriate pronoun. And I finally just stopped and said, okay, we need to stop talking about this patient because we're not able to use the correct pronoun. I mean, right. um, that, that's a significant uh, issue. But beyond that is respecting whoever um, their family of choice is and not relying on their family of origin. That's another um, um, aspect to incorporate into clinical practice and also, um, respecting whoever their, uh, uh, partner is regardless of their gender identity or sexual orientation. Um, just really it comes down to being a patient centered or person centered in the care delivery and using the pronoun, using the name, um, and respecting their family of choice. Uh, these are all very important things and not judging whether it's uh, drug use, alcohol use, tobacco use, hormone use, whatever, because um, you, you, you need to get that information from the patient to have the full picture uh, right. of what's going on with them. Absolutely. Thank you for that. You know, um, another thing that came out in that same survey um, from the Kaiser Family Foundation was that one in three transgender people report having to teach their doctors about transgender people in order to get the appropriate care. And of course, the recommendation that came from that was that the onus should not be on individuals. It really should be on institutions and in providers to do the right thing. Um, and they really pointed to, you know, they said the resources and guidance is out there. So what are, in, in your opinions, Jen and Michael, what are some of the, the better resources that you've seen in the field for education, um, for medical providers or for, for employers or for systems? Well, what comes to mind, uh, there's a couple of uh, books, frankly, that come to mind right off the top of my head. Um, one is called The Equal Curriculum, which is the Student and Educator Guide to LGBTQ Health. Um, there was also a book published recently on inclusive hospice and palliative care, focusing on the LGBTQ patient in end-of-life care and palliative care. Mm -hmm. um, there's the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, GLMA. Um, there's OutCare. Um, so there's a, numerous resources out there. Also, the National uh, Center for Transgender Equality, uh, mm -hmm. which is an advocacy organization. Um, the Fenway Institute in Boston um, does um, a lot of uh, webinars on different topics around LGBTQ, and, and including but not limited to transgender health. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some some um, resources right off the top of my head that I would refer people to um, yeah. in order to, to become educated. You know that the the trans community uh, is pretty tight knit, and they have their own informal network. Mm -hmm. And so that actually is another suggestion I made to clinicians, like ask them where are they getting their information around um, trans inclusive providers or where to go to for uh, for healthcare services. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and they will likely tell you their, their networking um, is in place. There's also different in different geographic areas, Dr. English, there's also um, specific um, uh, facilities and like community centers that um, they're there to meet the needs uh, of the individual. I also say, we talked about physical and behavioral health needs, but there's also 
the trans community is disproportionately negatively impacted by social determinants of health, things like absolutely homelessness is is yeah. rampant and and yeah. you know, like you mentioned before, this the sex work often comes as a consequence of being homeless and and having, you know, no way of of paying for food as a minimum. Yep. And also um, domestic violence is a huge issue in the trans community and actually the bisexual community as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, living in a, a food desert, a healthcare desert, um, a transportation desert, all those kinds of things. So in doing that assessment, physical, behavioral, and social determinants of health all need to be evaluated just because the trans community, like other underserved communities, are disproportionately impacted by social determinants of health. So it's very important to um, uh, identify those issues. And I would just make a plug um, for uh, any provider that is billing to include uh, social determinants uh, of health Z codes on your claim form. This will help the health plans and uh, plan sponsors, employers to understand the social determinants of health issues that um, their uh, members uh, face. Yeah, thank you. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the Z codes? I, I think many, many of us in, in integrated care as doctors of behavioral health or as, you know, case managers are, or, um, you know, other members of sort of the, the bridge between the mental health, um, the case management and the medical care are looking at um, ways to improve electronic medical um, records and, you know, billing systems so that we have um, an expanded ability to care for, for, for individuals and also get paid so that we can keep our doors open. Um, so can you, can you share a little bit more about your recommendations there for those of us who have the ability to uh, make a difference there? Yeah. So um, my informal way of talking about Z codes is that they're baby codes or junior codes, mm -hmm. and they've been around for social determinants of health now for several years. Um, so that's the good news. And they have things like food, issues, transportation yeah. issues, housing issues, um, but they are not required to get your claim paid. And so many, most providers um, do not put social determinants of health Z codes right. under their claim because they're not paid. So I'm working with my friends at, at insurance carriers to say, hey, why don't you start incenting providers <laughs> to include social determinants of health Z codes so that it gets into your database and so that you're at the health plan level, they can also see if they can provide some assistance. Uh, yeah, to I really love plan. that idea because you're absolutely right in that there were so many times where a Z code would have been appropriate, but I didn't use it because it wasn't directly related to billing. Right. Um, and it, it may have got, it may have been noted um, in the narrative, you know, in the soap note, but not as a specific code. Yep. But from a reporting standpoint and from a data analysis standpoint, using those codes is an important way for us to be able to track as an organization um, what social determinants are being faced, you know, by our primary population. Yep. And then and then, of course, it's incumbent upon the provider to then know, OK, if you've identified a social need then how do you navigate to those? And there are some free websites out there um, that you can use. Some uh, provider systems and health plans uh, have licensed um, uh, community-based organization network, CBO network platforms. Um, so they can put in, you know, like a zip code and what the issue is and then find the resources to help navigate uh, those individuals to, to, to meet those social needs. Um, so yeah, big, big advocate of Z codes is just less than 5%, I think, of claims have them on there. Um, but I think we you might start seeing insurance carriers providing uh, incentives to healthcare professionals to include that on their claim form. So it would have to go into your practice management system to the billing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Jen, hop in here. What, what do you want to add here? 
So I would add to, to Michael's last point, just knowing too about like, as we think about Z code. So, okay, we identified that as a need we're putting in the Z code. And then as providers, another step, I think we can take is being aware of any local community organizations for these patients so that we know what they can maybe access that might be free or that understand sort of some of the disparities or barriers that they're up against so that they can easily access that on their own or with us if they need help. Um, And I think taking special note, if it's an adolescent, um, because some of the social determinants of health that they face can even be astronomically difficult, especially like homelessness and some of those things, if they're getting kicked out of their home or they don't have an adult support, what can they access maybe as a minor or a teen um, that that they're not aware of already? So. I love those ideas. Um, it, it reminds me of a couple of times as I was, you know, working with, and normally in an integrated care environment, you may be as the doctor of behavioral health or the, you know, behavioral health consultant, you may also serve as the case manager because not every organization has a case management, um, individual that role may not exist. Um, or you may be expected to be, you know, sort of the first touch point for any individuals with mental health or comorbid, um, concerns. And then you may be asked to grow a position or create a position for case management individuals. And one of the things that I, um, regularly do as part of the organization is develop a list of local resources based on the needs of the population. So again, this goes, it goes back to Michael, your, um, your point about being able to better account for in, in, you know, use of Z codes, the social determinants that the patient population is facing and then to develop. And and again, to take the onus on to ourselves to develop a list of local resources and, and then, you know, build bridges, make connections with those local resources to make sure their doors are still open. The pandemic had a big effect on a lot of smaller, you know, nonprofit organizations or private um, offices or practices that may no longer be open or may only be providing um, services, you know, one day a week or, you know, limited scope. Um, so building those bridges, just reaching out, using the phone number that you may have provided to somebody before you give it to them to make sure that there is somebody trustworthy on the other line or on the other end of the line. And, and that, you know, even things like a, a website is still functional and is not just sort of a, a placeholder anymore. Um, but, you know, a couple of things that I created just in our own community here in Phoenix is, um, you know, I developed a list of local providers and I tried to look at providers across town who um, on their website were <clears throat> um, trans L- and, you know, LGBTQ affirming um, and, you know, whose missions um, really included the ability to provide specialized care for individuals in the LGBTQ community. Um, and, you know, that was something that I enjoyed doing primarily because I did not think that they, I didn't previously think that there were any individuals out there. Um, but I worked with a referral specialist from the Acadia system and, um, working with that individual, we were able to reach out to over 225, um, mental health providers and case managers in across um, the state of Arizona to identify in it. And I came up with three, uh, individuals who really, you know, have it as part of their mission, 
Um, and so that just goes to show, you know, again, how limited the, the number of, of specialty providers are. But at the same time, it was nice to at least have a couple of people that were safe, um, you know, referrals. So, um, yeah, that's something I think that doctors of behavioral health and, and integrated care providers in general need to really be thinking about is, you know, to what degree do you have your own network? And, and Michael, it kind of goes back to your point about tapping into if you're if you're working with a patient and you can say, you know, who else should I know in the community? Yeah, and I would just say in, in identifying providers, just make a, a I would make a big note that um, uh there are very different providers, of course, for different kinds of services, right? So female to male top surgery, female to male bottom surgery, male to female top, male to female bottom. Like there, you, you have to kind of catalog them or organize them based on the kind of service that they're getting. And then of course, behavioral health specialists and, and others as well. So um, that's just something to bear in mind um, uh, when you're working with the trans community. Yeah. Jen, do you want to add anything to that? would add to just sort of to Michael's point, like, are they, what are the, who are these providers? What do they specialize in? And the difference between like, are we comfortable seeing patients or are we competent seeing patients? Cause I know we even talk about that at work a lot. Like some of our clinicians just sort of, again, knowing their own limits. Yes. I'm extremely comfortable with that. I have no reason not to want to see patients who identify as transgender. However, I'm also not super competent in some of the care that they might be coming for. So I think just having those conversations, making those those outreach calls before we put in a referral or add that to our list of places to go to, making sure that they're safe and affirming and a, a truly a good resource. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great suggestions. I really appreciate that from, from you both. I want to kind of circle back to um, some of the, you know, challenges and barriers in the system. So at the system level, um, Michael, I know, you know, you, you do a lot of, um, public speaking on this issue. And, and Jen, I'm wondering too about some of the systemic issues that um, you know maybe need to be addressed at state policy or national policy level. Um, Michael, do you mind speaking about that first? Sure, no problem. Um, so there's a number of things that employers can do and really healthcare organizations can do. So um, allowing gender non-binary, having a very efficient way to change one's gender and one's name um, so that that's not, um, you know, a member abrasion, if you would. You know, just bear in mind, you know, we're, we're in healthcare, but, but there's actually three aspects of transitioning for um, a trans individual. Uh, one is social, so how they present in the world, how they self-identify when they tell people of their uh, identified gender. Another is legal, so changing name, changing gender and so forth. And then last but not least is healthcare. So just bearing in mind that there, there's different phases that we don't want to over-medicalize, right? What, what a trans individual goes through. Having gender neutral bathrooms, excuse me, providing training um, to, um, uh, to, to not only your healthcare professionals, but also like that front desk person um, or other non-clinical people in a, in a, whether it's healthcare or an employer setting. So if you have a patient present at the front desk, and um, the, they, their gender could be misidentified, um, that reaction from the receptionist or the medical assistant or whoever is greeting that person, you know, if it's not a positive experience, that person is not coming back. So, so I would just say, be, be careful not to just focus on the healthcare professionals, all of the ancillary and support staff that are interacting with 
uh, either customers or guests or patients uh, really need to have a training, uh, a one-on-one -on -one training on LGBTQ and particularly trans, the trans community. So those are some things that come to mind. And as I already mentioned, the comprehensive coverage for gender affirmation treatment. If you if an employer wants to even go beyond that or a healthcare organization, they can get external recognition from the human rights campaign with their corporate quality equality index or CEI um, that would demonstrate it, 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 they have a, several criteria, number of different criteria, not all healthcare related, or it's around policies and, and so forth, suppliers. Um, to demonstrate LGBTQ inclusiveness. And people look for those kinds of things when they go to receive healthcare or go to work for a company. Um, so those are some things just off the top of my head that I would recommend. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Jen, do you wanna go next? Sure, so I agree with Michael. Um, definitely the both public and private health insurance companies helping patients navigate that, that can be a huge barrier. Um, also financial barriers. So if there's a financial assistance program or resources, making sure patients are aware of those, um, trying our best to reduce those barriers where we can, um, making sure that we're focused on non-discrimination policies and laws in the workplace. Um, and then also like targeting funding towards that to support that so that we have spaces that are affirming. Um, and then also just making sure our support staff, whether they have direct patient contact or indirect patient contact that they understand um, affirming healthcare as well. Mm -hmm. So I have a difficult question. And again, we're in the business of having courageous conversations here. Um, but I know this is an issue because I consult with many providers and in different states. And I and I know um, you know, many things about healthcare delivery have become very political lately. And, you know, not the least of which is mask wearing or not mask wearing, um, vaccination or not vaccination. But an additional one is this issue of, you know, if you have staff members who are not comfortable, you know, working with individuals who are LGBTQ from a legal and ethical standpoint, what, what recommendations do you have to executive level or, you know, owner level individuals um, when part or one of your staff members, you know, kind of goes in that direction of, I don't want to do that. Michael, you want to start? Yep. So I caveat that saying I'm not an attorney and nor do I play one on television. So I, I want to just start with that. Mm -hmm. I think, first of all, having in your mission or vision or value statement at an organization about mm -hmm. being inclusive and being explicit about what that means. So you want to specifically include sexual orientation and gender identity in the list of anti-discrimination in your organization. Um, you might want to emphasize that when someone comes to interview um, and you might even want to incorporate uh, reviewing your uh, anti-discrimination or, or uh, we can turn that on its head and say LGBTQ inclusiveness um, when someone goes through orientation. I think having um, training sessions on these topics so they, that individual, um, you can address the need of lack of knowledge or skills. And then at the end of the day, you know, if it comes down to um, they just don't want to deal with patients, then I think that that could potentially be grounds for termination if they're not willing and able to comply with the code of conduct at your uh, organization, whether it's healthcare or or another setting of care. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for that, Michael. And, and Jen, I wanna ask you to weigh in um, here too, but I, I definitely feel very strongly in, in agreement with your, your statement of, you know, bringing up the, the mission and the values and making sure, um, you know, it is um, known right from the start in the hiring process. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is a strong part of the mission of the organization. Um, as an employer myself and, you know, the CEO of Cummings Graduate Institute, we have a lot of focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion across, across our mission, vision, and values. Um, and we created, uh, one of our wonderful team members created a, a culture deck. Um, and it is something that we send out to students when they are in the application process to let them know, you know, what, what our mission, vision, and values is. And, and we even go into detail unpacking that, um, you know, who we are, who we are not. Um, and in the interview process, whether you are an incoming student, a faculty member, or a staff member, we share that culture deck and ahead of time. And, and it is part of the interview process where we talk about, you know, the culture deck, we ask for your reflection on um, the, the mission, vision, and values and, and the culture of CGI just in general. Um, and part of the reason for that is because we're trying to norm from the get-go, um, you know, our commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, respect, you know, for persons, um, you know, just absolutely across the board. So I think that that is definitely a strategy that has worked really well for us at CGI. It's not an, an all, you know, all encompassing um, answer because, you know, there are always going to be times where um, there are going to have to be additional courageous conversations. And sometimes that might relate or, or result in, in saying to a person, um, I think it's time for us to talk about whether or not this is the right fit for you, because, you know, at the end of the day, um, this is our mission, vision, and values, and we are committed to this. And I understand that, you know, you feel very differently and there are other places of, of employment that, you know, might be more suited to your own personal mission, vision, and values. Um, so Jen, I, I want to ask you to weigh in on that. Yeah, I would add just sort of thinking about, you know, what type of culture do you want to culminate um, and create an offer to your patients and being aware if there are these issues popping up, like having these hard conversations with your employers. And, you know, if it's a, if the issue that you're seeing is due to a lack of education or information, then sure, we need to fix that through offering training or opportunities to learn. Um, and if it's due to you know, blatant discrimination, we need to fix that too. And to me, um, that would be something for me that would be unacceptable. So um, having that conversation that maybe it's not the best fit for you if that's how you feel, because that's not how we treat our patients here. Mm -hmm. Michael, did you want to add to that as well? Yeah, I, I almost feel like you know, if someone's blatantly saying, I don't want to deal with LGBTQ patients, like, I don't know, Dr. English, like it really becomes, if, you're, if your code of conduct as a licensed or certified professional requires you to be anti-discriminatory, like, should you report that person? I mean, I don't know. That's, that's, yeah. that's where my head goes. Yeah. And that, you know, and again, with the, with the increasing political, a politicization of, if I said that word correctly, of, of healthcare delivery, that that issue is getting more and more difficult because, you know, just, just like uh, the ethical, um, you know, standard of, of being non-discriminatory, we also have um, a health code of not practicing outside of our scope. And yet um, we all know uh, medical providers or, or pharmacy people who have told patients that, you know, they shouldn't be taking X, Y, or Z medication because they're pregnant without really having, you know, any access to their medical record or, you know, to the person who made the prescription to begin with. And so there are a lot of line crossing, you know, lane, lane changes uh, that are happening in 
healthcare, um, some of them from personal beliefs that are infringing upon, um, you know, the medical practice. And so I, I agree with you there. I think, I think obviously it's a, it's a case by case, um, consideration, but at the end of the day, um, you know, to be in a healthcare provider role is to adhere to the non-harm, you know, first do no harm. Um, you know, whether you are taking the, the, the code of ethics from Imhotep um, or from the Socratic oath, or, you know, whether it is just a, a personal, um, you know, sense of, I want to help and not to do harm, to be a person who is discriminatory um, is to do harm. And, and so I think we have a larger issue there as a society that, you know, um, it's, it's larger than any of us individually, but it is definitely something that we have to consider. No, I, I agree completely. I think, you know, as, as providers, we, we often have to put our own personal beliefs aside and, um, you know, there's situations where you can't then, okay. And you have to address that. But I think, um, that's sort of like the norm and we should certainly be able to do that for these patients as well. And for all of our patients, hopefully. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm sensitive to the time and I can see that we're getting close to the end of the hour here that you've set aside to talk with me. I want to thank you both for bringing your best selves to this conversation and and for providing your insight and, you know, your knowledge, because this is definitely a growing area um, that you know, each of us has to really learn more about. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier in, in, as we were chatting before we started recording, um, it, it's great to know that, that individuals are coming to this podcast to, to learn more about topics that they're not hearing elsewhere. So I just want to thank you both for, um, your, your information personally and professionally. Um, and I hope that it, it will definitely help and bring value to, to those listeners out there who are, who are coming to hear and learn from you. Thank you, Dr. English. You bet. You bet. All right. Well, thank you both. And um, for the listeners out there, we'll definitely be providing links to um, Jennifer's article, to to Michael's uh, publications, and to some of the resources that were mentioned in today's episode. And we hope that you return and come back to the podcast to learn more as we will be diving into additional topics in the near future. Thanks again for joining us today. 